Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Carrie Ewing, who's the director of Te Fare Afero Hope House. And this is an amazing initiative that reaches out to lots of different people in lots of different ways, and we find out all about it. But before that, we find out about Carrie's life. If you enjoy this episode, then why not tell one other person? Seeds is an initiative that really only spreads when people like you tell someone else about it. And don't forget, there's more than 300 other episodes in the back catalog as well. And make sure to check out the show notes where there's lots of links to things that we talk about. Now we're diving straight into this conversation. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Carrie Ewing, who's the director of Tefare Afero Hope House. And I'm really glad to have you here because I know quite a bit about Tefare Afero, and I'm really interested in the work that's being done out in the community, supporting a lot of people who probably come from quite a vulnerable place. But before we talk about that, I'd like to go back in time and find out a bit about your history and what's led you to be involved in this organization. So if you don't mind sharing with us, when you were, say, four or five years old, what was life like for you and where were you living? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, life for me, for, uh, four or five. So I grew up in a rural community in North Otago on a sheep farm. Oh, okay. Uh, so we went to a very small school. Uh, 25 kids, I oh, think, wow. in that order. So is that where, you know, standard two and three and four, they're all together? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, well, there was five in my year. Okay. Um, so to give you a picture, what that, what that means is that, that the whole school, uh, in, in, in break times, the whole school has to decide what we're doing. So if we're playing cricket that day, we need everyone right. to come play cricket. <laughs> if, we're, if we're playing soccer, then everyone needs to come play yeah. soccer. So it's, yeah, awesome. it's, it's an all-in situation yeah. So, uh, yeah and what what's the locality or the name of the place yeah so uh, i grew up in a little place called carahul uh which literally mean cabbage tree hill um that's that's and our farm was uh just beside the Cara river uh hmm. that ran down there so yeah sheep and beef farm back into the rolling hills um motorbikes running around chasing possums shooting yeah. rabbits this uh, is this is actually a point of connection because Believe it or not, despite my accent, I actually grew up in New Zealand, and we moved to a place right near the Waitaki River um, in 1984. So I went to a school at Papakaio, was the name of the little tiny place, Blink and You Miss It. Um, and that's why I kind of understand yeah. what you're talking right. about because yeah. we did have like standard three and four were all one mm. class, and there there couldn't have been more than. I don't know, 70 people. It was a little bit bigger than what you're describing, yeah. but not much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that was our community. There was a, a school, uh, which is what the school, the, the community really yeah. revolved around. Yeah. There was a church that I think held a service once a month. Right. <laughs> uh, and, a, and a community hall, the yeah. old traditional community hall. That was it. That, yeah. that was that was their community. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, I'm guessing that the outdoors was a big part of that childhood then? Yeah, so we were always expected to be helpful, uh, to come do stuff on the farm, right. um, to be available. We'd, we'd, the, the traditional thing was always, you know, would, would your dad saying, we'd come come, come, give me a hand with something? You'd say, what are we doing? Say, oh, just just come along. Right. And you'd jump in the ute. You'd jump in there, <laughs> that was it for the day. You're at the back of the farm and... Right, you, fixing a fence you, here yeah, or chasing, cutting some trees there. <laughs> yeah, generally down a gully chasing sheep somewhere or yeah. something. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah and a sheep and beef farm, like, just give us a sense of how how big is a farm like that? How many, yeah. I don't know, how many sheep? Oh, so uh, that varied depending upon <laughs> the market conditions. But it was 2,000 acres okay. was the size of the farm. And that would run anywhere from five to six thousand breeding ewes. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, there'd be fifty to a hundred head of cattle, and really they were just because they'd like seeing cows, Some cows around as the well. place. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> uh, but mainly it was a yeah yeah sheep farm. And, yeah. Wow. And so, and so when it came to like the tailing and things, would all the community kind of go from farm to farm to help out, or uh, how did that work? 
or yeah, shearing? Yeah, there was a bit of it. Yeah, so we used to work very closely with a with a couple of neighbours, and actually that developed into a contracting business of sort, where they would be. So they got on it. They'd do each other silage and hay, and then they worked out actually there was they could do that a bit. Um, you got into the circle of always wanting the next bit of gear, which then you needed to make it make money, which right. then you do more work, to which then you needed the next bit of gear. Um, and so uh, yeah. I'd watch the cycle build and go. Yeah, but it's interesting to me always to think about the origins of a person and then what they do today, because I know we're going to talk a lot about community and how important community is. And so even now, thinking to your own childhood, mm. growing up in a, quite a small community where yep. you probably knew everybody yeah, that's and right. you all supported each other. And if somebody had a, some accident happen on the farm, I'm sure everybody banded together and came to support them. Yeah, there was different elements of, of that. I can, it's a different events, yeah. And, and, and I guess also, you know, like if there was a big weather event or a flood event, then everybody was affected and everybody was... Um, trying to work out how to deal with it, whether that was a flood or droughts or uh, different things that went on. Mm. So, um, and yeah, there'd always be uh, the informal community, you know, just stopping trucks stopping on the side of the road and having a yarn and a check in and a how's talk it going? About, yeah, how's yeah. it going? <laughs> how much rain did you get? Um, yeah, that was North Otago is very drought prone, so that was always the. The big the question, yeah. yeah. When yeah. we um, when we lived there, so eighty four to eighty seven or so, um, in Papakaio, after church we went. To, there was a Presbyterian church, which was basically the only church in the whole area. And afterwards, there used to be um, like Sunday dinners, right. and the yes. bi- the families would all come, come together. Yep. And the funny thing for us watching, you know, was this farmer would not off to sleep. Right. For 20 minutes, and then this one was nodding off to sleep, and then this one sitting, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. just relaxing Dead on a Sunday time. afternoon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, that's 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 that, that's where uh, that's where my job is. That's your origins. Based. And when you're growing up in that environment, like now you're living here in Christchurch, mm-hmm. when you're growing up there, though, it, do you have a automatic assumption that you're going to do farming as well at some point, mm-hmm. or did you grow up thinking? Mm-hmm. Because I, I can see where it could go uh, I, one of two ways. Either yeah. I love this, Dad, I'm coming back, or I want to get out of here and, and get to the yeah. city. I was of the second. Right. Uh, not necessarily knowing where I wanted to get to, but I was quite clear that um, farming wasn't my game. That that wasn't what I, I was right. wanting or destined mm-hmm. to do. Um, uh, I had a brother who's a year younger than me, and he, he was the farmer, and... You know, I can still recall Dad would say things like, you know, do you want to come down and learn how to crush the sheep or shear the sheep? And I'd very quickly say no. Because <laughs> I understood that if you learn how to do that, that just opened up a That's whole lot your more job. jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas my brother said, sure, yeah, okay. And so he'd end up getting called down to... The right. more you learnt, the more you could do, the more you got roped into what was going on. I see. And, and uh, that wasn't my world. Yeah, um, yeah. So I didn't know where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. Right. But... Um, I so what was your world? I'm just curious, you know, at that mm. point, you're growing up in this fairly small community, mm. the farming is what you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you have any other examples mm. of what a career no. might be, for example? No, so I mean, I, I'm, I, I went on eventually to study social work and become a registered social worker. And um, I can recall that it wasn't until my 30s that I met someone who was a social worker. Mm. And I can, I can recall to now say, what is that? What does that mean? What do you do? What? Uh, so for me, no, I had no clear picture. Uh, I, I finished high school, uh, and I can remember. And then I, I, there was this sort of church-based job picking apricots in Roxburgh. Okay. That I applied for. Um, so I had no vision of what I was doing after high school or where I was going. And I applied for this, and, and they said, yeah, come on over. So I can remember I did my final exam, bursary exam at the time on the Friday, and then I piled everything into my little Datsun Sunny car and was driving for Roxburgh on the Sunday. Um, and I can remember thinking as I drove down the road, oh, have I just left home? Maybe I should have thought that through a little bit more. <laughs> what, what does this mean? Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where are we going? Uh, so I went to Roxburgh and... Um, 
a new world picked opened apricots up. and picked apples and did that for a season and then wondered what else will I do and someone said oh I'm going up to Tapuki to pick kiwi fruit I said, oh okay could I come with that he said yeah come on right. so I went to Tapuki and I picked kiwi fruit and worked in a packing shed for a season and then um, I can remember that was coming to an end uh, and I thought well, what will I do now and I, oh well it's just about apple season back in Roxburgh again. And right. I know the people there and everything else, so maybe I'll go do that. Um, and it was about that time my father rang up with something of an intervention call. He said, oh, I've, I've had a look around, and Lincoln University offers this sort of horticultural management course. You appear to be doing some horticulture. And I think he just didn't want me picking kiwi fruit or right. apples for the rest he, he of my life. He saw you were on a pass. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what's um, so that was a commerce degree, huh. majoring in horticultural management, and um, uh, I was dyslexic growing up, So, um, and for me that meant my uh, reading was above average. I excelled in being able to take in information in written form, so I was very fortunate in that manner. But my ability to uh, write it, to convey information in a written form uh, was creative on a good day, unlegible on a bad day. Right. Um, coded into my own Pacific code. Uh, so accounting was one of the few things that worked for me because it's logic-based. If huh. you've got two and two here, you must have four somewhere sitting somewhere else. And so I could do it. I didn't mm. like it, but I could do it. I see. So I ended up going to Lincoln University and I'd worked out that if I took every spare option in accounting-based papers and I did a fourth year on top of my three-year commerce degree, I could come out with ACA or be a look at accounting. So in my head, that was two bits of paper look better than one. And away I went. Wow, that's uh, interesting. I'm really curious about the dyslexia side of things. Mm. Can you describe a little bit more about that? And this is definitely a tangent, mm. so we'll, we'll see where we go with it. Yeah. But what what has that been like for you? You know, what is what yeah. do you think it unlocks for you? The reason I'm asking it in that way is that mm. I meet people who have children who are dyslexic. Mm. And I think sometimes it's viewed in a very negative way. And the reality, though, I think is that if you look at some of the most amazing entrepreneurs in the world, the the best example being Richard Branson, you know, these people who have had to think outside the box like you did had to be a bit creative about how they got to the end goal. Yes. So, uh, well, and that's an area of interest. So, Two of my children, two of my three, are, are dyslexic. So we refer to it in my household as the gift. Uh, it's a gift, um, and it's purposeful in trying to reorientate that. Mm. Um, and dyslexia needs to be understood. It's on a spectrum, so it affects people in different ways and different things. So I was, as I say, very fortunate. My reading, my ability to take in information was good. Yeah. So... Um, for many children going through school, because they struggle to take in information, they're considered to be uh, just unintelligent or not smart or not capable, mm-hmm. and they're put into that box. And once you hear that message and you, you, you're unable to experience achieving, um, which it's is like largely a in a form... Yeah, prophecy, it? well, the, the, uh, uh, the way we record achievement is, is mostly written-based. Mm-hmm. Um, as you go through it. So if you can't communicate well in a written format, you're going to struggle to achieve those um, outcomes and acknowledgement and that opens up new opportunities and uh, even putting you into different class streams and everything else. Now, for me, because I could take in information and I could reasonably well communicate it back, and probably being in a small school helped, I was never... Uh, I was acknowledged at being having intelligence, having ability uh, that was never communicated to me that I couldn't. Mm. It was communicated to me my writing wasn't great. That was very poor, and that made things change. But I could hold a balance that I wasn't dumb. Mm. I could learn, and I could articulate that quite well, but not in written form. Mm. So initially for me that meant I avoided writing things. Um, 
that was the best way and I'd look for other ways to display that. Um, and it wasn't until I went to Lincoln halfway through that that someone said to me, oh, you should go get a test done. I said, oh, what for? For dyslexia. Oh, what's that? Right. So it wasn't until that point there. Throughout high school, you just weren't good at writing. Mm. And there were episodes, I can remember uh, at the bursary level to get a, a back when, when possibly when you were at school, Stephen, to mm. get an A bursary, you needed to average, I think, 50% across five subjects and a B or something in that order. And um, I didn't know this, so I just assumed I would never be able to get an A bursary or a B bursary. I just assumed they were mythical things that were well above my level. Um, and so I decided in my final year at high school to take four bursary subjects instead of the five which meant if I was to achieve a B or an A, on my average it was going to have to be substantially high. And it wasn't until halfway through that year that someone said to me, an A bursary is a 50% average. Right. Oh, I could get a stinking 50%. Yeah. <laughs> no one, I didn't, yeah. no one had told. And then, because I'd taken the four, I now had to get a 62.5% average mm. um, to point, which I managed to do. But I just assumed, oh, yeah. It wasn't an option. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because I think what you're picking up on as well is that there are so many assumptions, particularly for young people, when you don't know. Mm. And, and you know, for your in your case, mm. nobody even said, mm. oh, there's a test that we could do or we could mm. find out about it. Um, the, the, I, I'll put in the show notes to this episode a link because I did a talk with Jeff Bone, who's mm. dyslexic. So um, he's behind the Canterbury AMP show. Right. And we had a 20-minute conversation about how he talks about dyslexia yeah. as a superpower. Yeah. So a very similar way yeah. of describing it. That yeah. But you, you've got to get... It's not one that's recognized in our educational system. Well, it wasn't as I came through. Yeah. I think it is certainly far more... I mean, look, it was only a few years ago that the... Uh, education department recognized dyslexia as being an mm. actual learning disability mm. up until that point they just denied the existence of it because mm. i presumably if you once you accept it you're gonna have to do something about it yeah, yeah. Um, and that becomes problematic and yeah how, oh. how well thanks it. for um, so. joining me in that little excursion into that <laughs> world right. of dyslexia mm. uh, i'm sure we could do a whole hour mm. on that oh. but can I? Add, is it, yeah. I've I've written letters to the editor. I would like to start a campaign one day. I'm just looking for when I have the time to change the term dyslexic to something dyslexics could actually spell. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that's a, point. A, a, yeah. a fundamental way in which the community disadvantages disabled people in itself. Sure. Um, yeah. So I really would like to start a campaign one day. Okay. To say, well, yeah. the shout out is there. Yeah. If anybody is listening, they can reach out to that's, you. And that's right. I mean, never know. I, I I challenge most able spelling people to spelled dyslexia yeah yeah it's true yeah it's a good point so you get to the end of your degree and you come yes. out from that did yes. you have in mind like <laughs> ac accounting like you're doing it because yeah. you have to because yeah. you want to get the qualification yeah. but you knew already that that wasn't the career for you or what it, was it like no i entered into it thinking oh well this is what people do mm. uh, get a degree and that's good um uh, two and a half years into my three years, I was walking to a tax lecture. Uh, I could walk you to the physical spot at Lincoln University on the quad. I could tell you where I had the closest thing to an epiphany, which was, I hate this, <laughs> uh, which was followed very quickly by the thought of, what do you think you were setting up the rest of your life to go do? Right. To which I thought, oh. I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> what have I done? Years. <laughs> I've, I've got to get out. I've got to change yeah. direction. Wow. Um, so uh, I could only think of one point thing worse at that point, and that was walking away with nothing after two and a half years' work. Right, yeah. So I said, I'm going to get my commerce degree. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to aim for 50% from that point on. Cause, uh, you and just want to pass. Fundamentally, what I learned at Lincoln University was uh, how to pass exams um, and that I didn't want to be an accountant. Right. Um, <laughs> I, had, I didn't understand the people. They weren't my people. This was not... It's uh, not your tribe. This was not my <laughs> tribe. This was not yeah. my zone. Yeah. So what um, do you do? I'm really curious now. Mm. Like You get to the end of your degree mm. and you realize that. Mm. That's, that's a significant investment mm -hmm. of time and mm. effort. Where do you go from there? Yeah. 
Um, so at that point, yeah, exactly. I set my goal, uh, a new goal, a new task, and that was simply to go travelling. Okay. So I spent the next six months doing enough to pass my degree, uh, hanging out with the local travel agent that was on the campus, and planning um, an overseas trip. Wow. Had you been uh, overseas before at no, that point? never. Right. Never. Yeah, because the, the childhood you described, it's like quite small town, yeah, country. Right. Yeah. yeah. What, what was it that sparked that I want to go overseas? I don't know. Um, uh, needed to do something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that became the 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 the, the drive. That was that was what, that was all I wanted to do was to go travel and experience and see. Yeah. So uh, I finished my degree. I did a season at the freezing works back down in Omaru to okay. save to save save my money, uh, and then I I took off. And for the next five years, uh, I. Just drifted around the world. Wow! Uh, Five years. Yeah, I did nine summers in a row. It was fantastic. I did come back to New Zealand on a couple of occasions. Okay, but I just couldn't settle. And and what uh, were you doing? Just, You'd obviously just, had this experience of fruit picking early on, yeah. so you knew how to get that type of job. Or what were you? Just whatever came uh, up. I went to a summer camp in America, okay. as many people do. Uh, I dropped into Iceland on the way through to England, just because it was there and it looked interesting. Um, I worked in England on the old working visas yep. for a period of time. Uh, we went, I went through Africa and uh, some of the Middle East and bits of Europe and returned back to the summer camp. I ended up going to that summer camp five summers in a row. That became the most stable, settled place. Wow. Um, and that's actually where I met a group of people that led me into social work huh. um, from there. Yeah, um, so... Why don't you describe that? What was mm. that like? What what ages mm. were you? Yeah. So it was a Baptist youth camp in America. Um, they would take in underprivileged kids from, it was in New Jersey. So they were getting kids from Philadelphia and New York and Newark and Camden and all the surrounding areas. So some of these kids had never, and, and the camp was sort of rural, New Jersey's just filled with people. I could never get over it. There's people everywhere. <laughs> so their rural still has people everywhere in it. But this was rural, so it was out in, in the country, had a lake and a bit of woods and forest area. So some of these kids had never been out of the city sort of thing. Though. So we'd have them for a week and we would take them know, boating and mm. doing archery and walking through woods and road and courses. So, and so was that where you saw the power of, of social work or, or dealing with young people? Or? Uh, I think that's where I learned that I had some skills with people. Um, that uh, being able to engage, it's also where I got some leadership opportunities. So over those summers, uh, in the last few, I was put in charge of the, got some leadership opportunities with the other teams and so forth. Um, develop the relationshipal skills that come with their, um, I guess, got a sense of empowerment and, and made some lifelong friends uh, mm. as well. Um, and, um, and, and that's what one of those friends, uh, Mike Bricks, he was at a Christian college in Philadelphia and he and a group of his friends had just started this really radical path um, of caring for poor people, really, which shouldn't sound that radical, but uh, they were at a, a very well-to-do Christian college in Philadelphia, and uh, he and a group of his friends had discovered that there were a whole lot of homeless people literally living just down the road. Right. Um, and they were just really challenged by what they were doing in their school and their study and the opportunities that it created for them. Um, and what was literally just down the road. and um, Their foundings, a, a group of these homeless people had moved into an old abandoned church in winter because uh, they had nowhere to go, and the church was trying to throw them out um, and trespass them. And uh, in their youth, they connected with these homeless people and they started bringing food and hearing their stories and just engaging with them and supporting them in their cause and the injustice of that. Um, and out of that became The Simple Way, um, and um, that's where Shane Claiborne came out of, who's written some international bestsellers now, and 
really challenging the discourse around the church's role, well, where the church should be involved with poverty and so mm. forth. Um, so after each summer camp, because um, I had literally nothing else to do, I'd right. spend three months with I could get a three-month extension on my visa. Mm. So I would go just hang out with them. Mm. Uh, and they and this was this early stages of their starting, or yeah, had they been going yeah, for a so while? Yeah, so when my first camp, they were still at college, yeah. and then the second year I came because I remember I, I went back and just slept on his college dorm floor um, for a period of time and just hung out at the college. You know. Right? I'd, Why not? <laughs> yeah, I had nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, I was literally living life in blocks of about three months ahead of the time. Um, which gets quite addictive after a while. Right. <laughs> the freedom, the flexibility of, of these things. Uh, and then they they, uh, they, collect, they brought a house in one of the poorest areas of Philadelphia in, in Kensington. Mm-hmm. And they just moved in there and they just started being good neighbours and supporting people and just just engaging in that neighbourhood. And that's what the simple way grew out of, which mm-hmm. became a movement in its, its own right. And so I just got these wee snapshots over these years of seeing yeah. progress. And, uh, and that culminated, um, uh, there was this march. They were walking. This was in the years Bill Clinton was bringing in a lot of welfare reform in America, and included in that was this one provision where you could only get welfare for five years in your life. Uh, so if you needed that support past there, sorry, the state wasn't going to be providing that to you. So uh, they and a whole range of other groups decided to protest this by marching from Washington to New York over 32 days hmm. and my friend was going on this and it came to the end of a summer camp I said what are you doing I said oh going on this marching could I come sure you can so I went on the march uh, but for me that was just purely experience it just sounded interesting and that's what I was chasing yeah. experiences uh, things that were interesting um, and so that we walked and we just slept on the side of the road uh, be a couple of hundred people uh, walked all that way, uh, women, children, um, just homeless people. Yeah, uh, they would they would drive ahead and say roughly we'll be in, they'd drive ahead and, and plot roughly where they'd end each day and would go into that community and just knock on all the doors of the churches and say hey we're a bunch of homeless people protesting against this could we sleep in your hall we've got nowhere to go. Wow. And some nights the church would go yes you're very welcome and other times there'd be nothing and. Hmm. We just—it's a really interesting a story, story, and I'm I'm glad that we start in these conversations with the person's yeah. history, yeah. and that informs what you do today. Right. Because I, it it seems yeah. as a young person, there are all these thoughts and influences coming in, mm-hmm. both at the the camp for children, you know, that are yeah. coming out and learning about new things, and then these people you're meeting, yeah. and then participating in a march like that. Well, doing that opened my eyes. So growing up in rural North Otago, it was as simple as if you work, you eat. Mm. If you work hard, you'll prosper. There is no reason why you can't prosper. Uh, Every opportunity is there for you. You just need to work. Well, that collided directly with my experiences that I was learning now because I was meeting people who just didn't have opportunity. It didn't matter how hard they may work. Mm. They didn't have opportunity to gain, whether it's education or um, advancement or support or, or, or whatever that may be. Mm. And um, those experiences... I can remember driving through Africa and seeing kids that would chase after us and beg for a pen or a plastic bag, anything. Mm. And I can remember looking at them and saying, there's only one thing different between me and that child chasing this truck and me sitting on the back of this truck that we were travelling on. And that I was born into this family Mm. and they were born into that family. That's it. Mm. If I was born here, I'd be chasing that damn truck just in case Mm. somebody flicked me a pen or a dollar or whatever that may be. Mm. That would be me. I'd be doing that and I'd be running the hardest. Mm. And that that collided with that and and uh, so my, my good conservative Christian values growing up of saying actually there's a lot of unfairness and injustice in this world Yeah, uh, that is not defined by I can't claim where I've achieved that I'm riding on the track 
from ability. Most of it was gifted to me by just opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, some I think some people talk about the postcode lottery. Yes. You know, where were you born? Yeah. You had no control <laughs> yeah. of the origins. Yeah. I interviewed someone named James Stewart recently, and he does a lot of um, work in an amazing array of things. I can't right. even list them all. But he was describing visiting Africa at some yeah. point, similar experience to you, I think, and, and being challenged by somebody right. saying, what will you do with your privilege? Yes. What will you do with your privilege? Those because much is given, much is expected. Yeah, it's it's that ethos, yeah. isn't it? And yeah. and the reality is that the very fact that you were taught to read at all, you know, yeah. that's an amazing. Uh, the vast majority of people don't even have that available. Having to them. running clean water mm. is uh, the vast majority of the world does not have access to. Mm. We 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 get lost. Uh, in this country of what is yeah. deprivation, yeah. Uh, and we confuse that yeah. badly. Um, so they were, they so were they colliding were, points. Of, yeah. oh, what does this mean? Very, what do I do with this? Where very, do I go now? Very formative, and in your early sort of twenties, you know, yeah. shaping of your thinking. Yeah. So I'm, I am really keen to talk about what you're doing today. So yeah. maybe we can talk through the next sort of jobs that you had, or when yeah. you came back to New okay. Zealand. And I'm keen yep. to find out, and I know one of them, <laughs> um, yeah. but we'll just kind of condense yeah. some of that yeah, next sure. bit so that we can get sure. on to what you do. Well, out of that, uh, and essentially um, after five years of drifting and discovering that all my friends now had jobs or got married and brought fridges and all I had was a lot of photos, I attempted to settle down. And so part of that strategy to do is I came back and studied social work at Canterbury. Uh, one of my friends was married to a social worker. That's where I had that conversation of, what is a social worker? What do you do? Never heard of this before. You do what? Oh, okay. Um, so I came back and studied social work. Um, and through that, I met my wife because I very quickly learnt that um, I wasn't going to be able to write 5,000 word essays in a manner that would be suitable for the course requirements. So I had to find someone else that would help me and proofread those. And so I picked on a young primary school teacher at our church and said, would you help me? And she said, yes. So she proofread every essay that I wrote. And then um, after a series of other, we got married just after I graduated. Wow. <laughs> um, so she got a crash course did, on social did, work did as you, well. I have to ask this. Did you, know, did you see that? At the time you no, asked her, no, 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 no. I just thought <laughs> there was who, no ulterior motive who's there. Someone that's good at writing and reasonably educated and <laughs> is friendly. You know, primary school teachers, right? Right. There was two at my school, and I picked on at, at my church. I said, Would you help me with this? And she said, "Yes, okay." Yeah. Um, and bless her. That's how I passed the course. Yeah. She proved well, you it. owe a lot to her. Yeah, it sounds oh, like. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and throughout that course, I also worked out that what simplifies the study was if you pick a theme and do everything on that, then I picked f poverty. Ah. So every course we did, whether it was cultural, research, social theory, I honed on the effects of poverty, has on life development and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so I, I completed my graduate diploma, um, and then I, I worked briefly for uh, what was Child, Youth and Family at the time, and... Uh, Children's Health Camp at the time, and then I ended up at Pathway Trust, uh, a charitable trust that had actually seeded out of the church I was going to, Rickland Community Church, so mm -hmm. I'd been aware of it for a while. Uh, it was a trust that was social enterprise before we really knew what social enterprise was, and a group of businessmen and engineer and had got together, got their hands on a chair manufacturing plant, and we're wanting to run that here and offer jobs to people who couldn't get them elsewhere. So whether they had prison backgrounds or off the streets or drug and alcohol addictions or whatever else. And um, they were making these chairs and attempting to sell them with a very problematic uh, employment strategy <laughs> <laughs> along the way. So and, I ended and up... And how long did you end up them. staying with that? Yeah. Role? So I was with Pathway for the best part of uh, 16 and a half years or something close wow. to 17 years yeah. um, and so uh, when I came in there one of the things they wanted to develop was a prisoner reintegration program mm. um, and so that became my task and we set the goal of building the world's best prisoner reintegration program 
that was the that was the the goal. Uh, and so that's what took over life for best Quite part a while. of those seventeen yeah. years. Yeah, decade yeah, and a half. Right. Yeah. Well, what we'll do in the show notes, we can put links to things. So we'll put a link to their website because yeah. they do do amazing work, and I, yeah. I often yeah. use them as an example of this concept of social enterprise, yeah. which is you have a mission and a purpose. Yeah. Instead of fundraising and getting donations to then run an education program to teach ex-prisoners mm. how to get a job, mm. you actually just employ them. <laughs> and and by mm. doing that, give them a step into further employment yeah. and other opportunities. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so no, I joined that. That pathway, uh, or that and that, that journey, and that and that yeah, that took over life, and yeah, uh, we, we we. And if you're in a role like that to. for that long, like sixteen and a half years, at, yeah, what was it that caused you to think, oh, I'll try yeah. something new, and I'd love to find out about what you're doing today. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, my role there was we can trying to. As Pathways mission was to work with those on the margins of our community and what led us into prison is that prison's full of people on the margins of our community in the end. So and that fed into my sense of growing sense of the injustice of the world and the lack of opportunities that some people um have. And when I would talk about prisons I commonly see the our prisons are full of adults that we as a community failed as children. Not all and that's not a justification of poor behaviour or bad behaviour, but it does help you give an understanding of how sure. we have so many people in our prison environment. And then it gives you an understanding of how can we respond so that we can reduce future harm mm. and hurt for both the men that we're working with and their families and their communities around them. And, yeah, those are after stuff for there. Um, the... Uh, after being there for quite a period of time and developed some significant projects and, and did some good work there, uh, an opportunity came up and um, I was looking at the next step and, and so, uh, yeah, was successful in applying to be the director of Tafari Ferro, uh, which is a Hope House Community Development Trust uh, based largely in Hornby, grew out of Hope Church on Amy's Road 30, coming up 34 years ago. Uh, the trust uh, does a range of things. It has an affordable counselling service, a professional counselling that we try and make sure is affordable so all people can access it. We run uh, before and after school programs in schools, a number of low decile schools through the OSCAR program. Uh, we're building, we're one of the partners of the Manaaki program, which is uh, mental health resilience workers in primary schools and intermediates across Canterbury, yeah. um, which has been remarkably successful with one of the 12 partnering agencies in there and we're increasingly uh, seeking to respond to community needs so we we just have people knocking on our door asking for help so we've built some roles now that can just respond and partner and and, and go with them in that space mm. um, can I ask a question yeah. and I don't know exactly how how to phrase this the best way but likely the people are listening to a podcast you know, using their latest iPhone or at the gym listening to us talk or whatever, they're probably a little bit removed from the reality of life in Hornby, as just as one example. Um, can you describe a little bit of some of the needs that you would see up close and personal? Because I just want to make it real for people, not because yeah. yeah. you know you describe the children in Africa asking for a pen, but I think there's a lot of need here mm. in Hornby yeah. as well, as yeah. just yeah. one example That's among right. many. And and you're right. We have one of the highest uh, gaps between the haves and the have-nots in the Western world mm. here in our country. There is a huge discrepancy between those that are prospering and doing well and uh, those who are not. Mm. And for us, our biggest concern is that next generation and those children because they growing up into those homes uh, of no fault of their own will have limited opportunities, constrained horizons around what is possible, what can be enabled. It's not impossible. People break out. But uh, those stories are remarkable because they're very rare mm. and it shouldn't be remarkable. Um, in that. Now, what do we see? 
So we've taken a particular interest into the Hay Hay Broomfield communities. We know that's one of the most socially deprived in the whole of Christchurch. It's in that greater Hornby area and patch for us. When I talk to the principals there at those schools and I hear my staff, they will tell me things like on a, on a really wet day like we just had, half his school won't tent. That's enough of a barrier to stop significant amount of his children at that primary school coming to school on that day, either because they don't have jackets or appropriate footwear or it's just too big a challenge for transport or issues or whatever else. But that's that's the extent of the what all it can take mm. for those children to miss out on that day mm. uh, in school. Uh, those schools are providing breakfast and lunches um, mm. uh, to... To, to most of the kids, uh, they're seeing increasing behavioural challenges and issues. COVID has um, exacerbated um, a lot of those things um, uh, in those in, in, in challenges. There are uh, increasing mental health behavioural issues that they are being challenged and dealing with in those school environments as our families and those corners are really struggling um, to exist um, the poorer you are the least you can protect yourself when you've got high inflation environments um, you don't have reserves you can't shift things into other spaces um, you have what is there in front of you uh, one of the children we were working with uh, she's the eldest of nine uh, her role was to get the, the next three or four siblings to school on time and she steps into that role game. When she was due to go to high school, uh, we learned that she was going to be late every day to high school because she still needed to get mm. her siblings to the primary school in that regard. Yeah. Um, now, we were able to step in and say, actually, we'll open a spot on our Oscar program before school We'll make it free for you on this occasion mm. along the way. Um, let's, 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 let's get your girl to high school and give her the best chance she can go mm. and let her go be uh, age-appropriate for yeah. a period of time in here. Mm -hmm. So, And these things are not uh, un uncommon. Mm. Um, but if I may, see, we mm. do have a plan. Mm. We do have an idea. Yeah. We, do have, we do have something we want to drive into to yeah well to i'd love to hear this. about that because um i but just to emphasize i interview a lot of people on the podcast and increasingly mm. it makes me realize the privilege that i have like mm. we discussed before because mm. i had someone named anna masui henry so she grew up in auckland as an immigrant uh, family from right. tonga and she described growing up and deciding should i cut my slice of bread as a triangle mm. or as a square because that was the difference between the meals yep. and that really hit home with me you know yeah. like that that would yeah. she she's all that she had was bread yep. you know just a slice of bread and i think for lots of those listening and me we're mm -hmm. kind of looking at shopping prices and the cost of groceries and it's a in very much going up right now it's mm -hmm. inconvenience but it it mm -hmm. doesn't affect us in the same mm -hmm. way that it would with people who are already yeah. in you know, a, a 10 meters Stress, behind the 100 meter stressed race. Stressed environment, uh, straining. Yeah. So how so, is it, like yeah. just thinking about the future, how is it that people could support or get behind mm. this? Yeah. So something that we are developing, we're building, and we want to try and roll this out this next year, but we would like to build a longitudinal whānau support model of care. Um, I do need to come up with a better name for this program. But <laughs> it is yep. something where we are looking at where we can come alongside uh, those hardest to reach, those most isolated family and whānau, particularly in Hay Hay Broomfield community, that's our patch and area of interest, and say, we want to journey with you from when your children start school all the way through to when they turn 20. Now, we have to be careful in that space. We don't want to come and replace parents. We don't want to come and push them. We want to come in and enable them sure. to be parents. So expanding horizons, realizing potential. Mm. Then along with that long-term support, and as we build that trust and engagement, we'll continue to set new goals and challenge them to set new goals, bigger goals and extend it. And we want to work with the schools, which we've started doing in that area there, and 
develop uh, pathways to excellence, opportunities that they can engage and be a part of. Mm. You go into that community, there's no sports clubs in Hei Hei. There's no churches that readily meet in Hei Hei. There's not that community infrastructure and support. In there. There's community that love each other, but there's not those infrastructural things there, those opportunities. So, for example, at Gilberthorpe School, where we've been working for the last year, we've got a counsellor in there a day a week. We're running a sports pro- funding a sports program in the, that school. We've got a drama club running, a Taiha program going. We're running parenting classes. So from that school hub, we've got all these these opportunities going on. We've gone to the school. We'll offer that free of charge. We'll we will fund that and help them. And the schools embrace that. The principals literally said, anyone that's going to help me to educate these kids or put them in a space where I can educate them, I'll help you come in. Yeah. Uh, I said to him the other day, what do you need? And he was a little bit exasperated. He said, I just need a regular, reliable adult that would turn up half an hour once a week and just read with one of my kids. That's what I need, Kerry. I'm at that level of need. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll try and work with that. So we want to put those core workers alongside those whānau, help to build those trusting relationships. Through that, help them to engage and take advantage of those um, pathways that would set up via the schools. And then around that, we want to set up a scholarship program and opportunity. So Johnny comes along, he gets involved in the drama club. He discovers he's got a passion for this. He's actually quite good at it, and he likes it, and he wants to do it. Okay. So if that was my child, or I suspect yours, Stephen, mm. you would then go, right, we'll resource whatever that takes to enable you to go to the drama training school or court theatre to develop that. We would welcome this because we know that if we build something of meaning into your life, it is less likely when drugs or alcohol or antisocial peers come along that you're going to forego what you've got for that. But if you don't have meaning, and this is what I learned from the prison work, if you don't have things that you know you can be good at, that you can master, that you've got hope for, then all of those things suddenly seem like a no-loss proposition. Why not? Mm. Why not get involved in that? Why not try to shortcut it? Why not shoplift? Why not elevate that to whatever else? Why not try to avoid the pain and everything else? Mm. Because I don't have something of meaning or something. So we want to build that from there and then create those scholarship-like opportunities so that we discover those potentials that we can then help them to believe, not only believe, but also have a pathway to achieve them and outcome. So yeah. that's that's the proposal that we're building this year. Mm. Um, we want to try and roll that out next year. Uh, it's very difficult because nobody really funds anything for Sure. Uh, an extended 15-year proposal is, is what we're talking, a level yeah. of commitment in there. Um, but that's, but what, yeah. that's what's needed, isn't it? It's that longer-term vision beyond just the immediate today. Yes. It's the six months, yeah. year, yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Because if you can, I'm just thinking practically, if you can help a 12-year-old, then when they're 22, that's when you're going to yes. see the real dividends that's that... Right. That come out and the social cohesion that results. So we want to change this. As a a social worker, I'm a bit tired that the government and the community comes to me and asks me to deal with crises. Sure. But it never gives me opportunity or really gives me opportunity to go deal with whole contexts, which we know Mm. is actually what creates meaningful change. So uh, as we did with the prison work, I want to go do something meaningful. Yeah. And we're going to go build that proposal, and then we're going to seek out people that will fund and support and partner with us. And whether that's financial or volunteers, whether they're one of those adults that say, I'll come read for half an hour with a kid once a week and be that regular, reliable person. Mm-hmm. Um, or resources or groups that are running programs in there that want to come be with them. Yeah. Um, that's who we're going to go looking for. So, so you're really open to conversations with people. And oh. I guess what we'll do in the show notes, we'll put a link to the website so people can click through and find yeah. out more. But that what you just to highlight, one of the ways that people could support would be to actually come in and sponsor or to yeah. actually have a means. Do you want to Absolutely. just describe that? Yeah, so one of the mechanisms that we're seeking to, to build a funding process for is we've we set up a... Uh, like a small business or a personal sponsorship program 
Uh, it's one in which we can acknowledge someone for being a, a hope champion, uh, a champion of hope. Uh, it is a regular small financial contribution that comes through to us that then creates um, multiple streams into a river that enables us to fund and support that work. So as I say, there will be people out there that can partner with us with time, with resource, with what they're doing, and others in a financial setting as well to enable to, to do that. And, and all of this is, I guess, going back to us trying to create opportunities uh, for the children growing up in these families um, who were simply born there when we were born here. Yeah. Nothing else. Yeah. No other difference. And to me, that's fundamentally unfair. Yeah. Uh, and something I... That's what drove what I wanted to be about. And I wanted to do something meaningful in that space. Mm. Not what we could get a government contract for or not what... But something that could create meaningful, real change. Yeah. So we will start with proposing a meaningful, real proposition that can actually work, and then we will seek funding for that, yeah. rather than traditionally what a lot of charities do is what Chase will you the fund, funding. Yeah, yeah. and then I'll go do that. Yeah. We, 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 I will always go the other way around. Yeah. Well, it's been really great to hear this story and also to connect your personal story with what you're doing today and the impact that you're having. Um, so I just want to tautoko and support what you're doing because it's a really cool initiative. Um, if people want to know more, I'll encourage them to find the link and, and reach out and, and see if there's ways that they can support. Yeah. You've outlined some really practical <laughs> ways that that can happen. But I just want to say thank you so much for your time coming and sharing it with us today. Um, yeah, and we'll definitely be watching and seeing. And um, I really hope it can become a template or an example that others can mm. look at as well that could then be rolled out in other communities. Yeah. So yeah. thanks so much for sharing with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kerry. There was lots of things that stood out for me, and I really appreciated his honesty in sharing some of his story and the origins of what has led him to do what he does today. If you want to check out what they're doing, then make sure to look in the show notes because there's links to different websites, and there's lots of ways that you can support the initiatives that he talked about. If you enjoyed this, then would you consider telling one other person about Seeds? Until next time.